Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host Sean Cheatham and Andrew Warwick, who is going to be helping with our discussion today. Um, you can check us and other podcasts out at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog, theparticularbaptist.net. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel uh, and you have not subscribed yet, be sure to hit the subscribe button and click the bell to get notified when any new videos come out. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Sean to introduce our topic. Yeah, so today we'll be talking about hermeneutics, and uh, hermeneutics is really the thought behind how we interpret the Bible. And really the impetus for this is um, sort of issues that we see even within um, Bible-believing uh, Christianity about how to interpret the Bible. And as a, a little bit of maybe a, a thought experiment or whatever, uh, if I were to tell you that there was a group of people out there that was uh, saying that without outside extra biblical information on the cultural background of the people who wrote the Bible. Uh, the Bible is essentially a closed book, whether they'd say that explicitly or implicitly, that's the, uh, that's the, um, that's what they're implying at the very least. Um, who would you think I was referring to? I'd imagine that um, at least some in our audience would think that I was talking about like unbelieving scholarship um, that treats the Bible as a merely human created book and not a divine work. And thus the key to properly understanding the meaning of any given Bible passage is the circumstances of that human author that wrote it. Um, however, this could also be a description of some modern conservative scholarship. Uh, and as we go through, hopefully we'll demonstrate some of the unbiblical presuppositions of even uh, quote unquote conservative scholarship so that our listeners can move in a more biblical direction of Bible interpretation. Yep. Andrew, if you want to uh, take us into kind of laying down the presuppositions yeah, from Second Timothy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, so the question is, uh, when it comes to hermeneutics, which is just uh, the principles of interpretation we use when reading scripture, um, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what, what are hermeneutics? Where do we go to get them? A lot of people seem to come to this issue with the presupposition that the Bible doesn't say anything about hermeneutics. But I would argue that on the basis of the, the well-known passage in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that's not a viable uh, possibility. Um, just to, to remind everybody of that, uh, 3, 16 to 17 says, uh, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. One thing we want to understand at the get-go here with this passage is that man of God is a specific title that's given in Scripture. It's used exclusively for people who are, uh, who are the mouthpiece of God, who are ministers of God in the New Testament context. It's used here and then in 1 Timothy 6.16 as, uh, as a title that that. Timothy has. And in the Old Testament, it's used for, for the prophets. It's not just your average Christian, although for sure every task that the man of God has to do, the Christian in, in the pew has to do as well. So scripture is certainly given for all good works for them. But even more than that, it's, it's given for all good works for the man of God, the minister, the pastor, the, the elder. One of his main jobs, though, one of his main duties and responsibilities as an under-shepherd of God is to preach faithfully the word of God. And 
you can't preach faithfully the word of God unless you have the right principles for interpreting it. So hermeneutics has to be covered uh, by the scripture. Otherwise, it hasn't equipped the man of God for every good work. Uh, he doesn't know how to preach Christ from the Old Testament, for example. But the reality is the scripture gives us example after example of how to preach Christ from the Old Testament, how to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul would say. Uh, it's absolutely fundamental for everything else that we do in scripture is, is uh, interpreting it rightly. And we can have great confidence that God has equipped us to do it. I would honestly say the reason why some people act like scripture doesn't give us examples for how to do this is because they don't like the examples that it gives us. And it, it contradicts what uh, is often taught in even conservative cir circles today in scholarship. Yeah, it's really, it's almost seems like it's a, uh, an implicit denial of any kind of divine authority. It's just, let's treat the scriptures as any other book. Let's treat the scriptures um, as in the same category as, say, the Odyssey, you know, and let's yep. interpret it in that same context. But we can't do that. It's, it has divine authorship. Um, and a lot of, honestly, what I, my contribution to this today was based off of um, uh, Carter's book, uh, interpreting scripture with the great tradition, which is uh, a book on biblical hermeneutics um, in which he provides uh, good metaphysical groundwork to how we come to the scriptures. But we have to see the scriptures as being divinely inspired. That must be the basis for all that we do. If we can't do that, then we're going to have problems um, as we interpret the scriptures because we're just merely seeing it as a human work. Passages that are supernatural in nature won't have any real meaning, and we'll just write them off as metaphorical or allegorical or however mystical way we want to write them off um, when they may not be interpreted that way based on the principles provided in Scripture. So we have to see the Scriptures as coming from God primarily. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have anything you want to add to that? Absolutely. Uh, the fact that it comes from God is why we can have confidence that it, it teaches us to, to handle it rightly, as I was just discussing this. Uh, the, the examples given to us in Scripture aren't just a haphazard collection of things that the human authors came up with. Each passage and each word even was divinely selected and put there so it could serve as part of the church's handbook in all ages. And if you're not interpreting Scripture in that light, you're not interpreting it rightly. And that's the foundation for scripture being sufficient for us, sufficient for every good work, which means it's not necessary to consult outside extra biblical resources in order to understand the message of scripture. At the same time, I don't want to go to the other extreme and deny that there's nothing good you could ever glean from an extra biblical uh, source for, say, providing background for certain Old Testament contexts and the like, but they won't fundamentally shift the meaning of the text from what you would get from comparing scripture scripture because God has provided everything necessary uh, to understand about the context in other places in scripture. Uh, and if you're neglecting the natural reading you would get from that whole Bible hermeneutic uh, in favor of something that you've pieced together from outside information, you're going to come away from the wrong meaning of the text. And what's worse, oftentimes this meaning that people come up with 
isn't even something that could have been come up with before the 19th or 20th century. A lot of it's based on pretty recently archaeological discoveries. And if you think that's necessary to understand the fundamental meaning of scripture, you would have to confess that the basic meaning of many passages was completely lost and inaccessible to the church for the vast majority of its history, uh, based off of scant reconstructed uh, evidence. Yeah, and you even see there are those who do consult archaeological finds that end up denying the scriptures anyways. They're like, well, this yeah. doesn't comport with what I found that allegedly is not consistent with the scriptures, so therefore I'm going to reject it. Because mm -hmm. that's their standard. Naturalism is their standard for looking at the scriptures, but we can't do that. And that leads us into our next point here with one of the fundamental principles of interpreting scripture is using other scriptures, finding clear passages that help to frame the rest of uh, the scriptures. Like if you're looking at a specific text and you're not sure what it means, it's good to go. And you should first and foremost, look at the context of that passage immediately. We should also look at other places that speak to that topic or that concept more clearly um, that help to inform that text that you're reading. Um, and, and this will help us not only to um, interpret scripture rightly, but it will help us to avoid falling into contradictions and making the Bible to be apparently self-contradictory when we know it's not. Um, and using that principle, that metaphysic, that God is the author of scripture and God is truth itself. God is going to speak truth. He's not going to contradict himself. And so if we use other clear passages of scripture to inform the less clear, we're going to have a much better job in our uh, journey of interpreting specific texts. Um, and this is a not this is not only a biblical concept, but this is a reform concept as well. We see this in our own confession of faith. Um, if you look in paragraph six of chapter one, uh, it says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward elimination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature, in Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So God has given us everything that we need for faith practice, and practice would include interpreting the scriptures um, in his word. And so we have to start there uh, with those things. But um, our confession makes it very clear that there is going to a going to the clearer passages to interpret the less clear. It's actually paragraph nine that talks about that. Um but we can utilize these ordinary means to be able to, that God has given us and God has given his church to interpret the scriptures. Paragraph seven, uh, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some places of scripture and other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due sense of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. So, this is what we call the perspicuity of scripture. Scripture is clear and through ordinary means we'll be able to um, come to a, at least a basic understanding of, uh, of a scripture that's presented as God has promised to, to lead us in all truth. So understanding that scripture is divinely authored, which trickles down to uh, the, the 
the methodology that we utilize that is in the back of our minds, always in the forefront of our thinking, and then utilizing the scriptures themselves to interpret scripture. And then all these other things like historical context, literary context um, are important, but they are secondary to the primary uh, interpretation, which is the understanding that this is from God and that the scriptures interpret themselves. Yeah, and excuse me, one seven is is really important in saying that while there are things that are are more hard to understand, the fact that salvation is clearly laid out is is very important. You do get people like say the new perspective on Paul, right? Which is going back, looking at um, supposedly what the uh, the Jews of Second Temple Judaism believed. And saying, oh, well, you know, they weren't really legalists. Therefore, Paul isn't writing against this legalism. And somehow they get out of that, that, well, the salvation by faith that Luther and the reformers preached isn't really what, uh, what Paul was preaching. That's, that's, that's crucial there. there that's, um, that's horrible there. Um, you're, you're, you're saying that the church had no way to really know what Paul was saying when he's mm. talking about the gospel and salvation and justified justification by faith until we really did this, this deep background search into the, um, uh, what the Jews of the time believed. And I don't think that ultimately their, their view of history is correct about what the Jews of the time believed. We can mm. see it from the new Testament though. That's not what they believed. Mm. Um, but it's, you're 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 basically saying, well, it was impossible for the church for a time to actually know what Paul meant, and that's a, that's 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 horrible, and it denies that God has preserved the means of understanding His Scripture to His church for all time. It's not enough to say that God's preserved His Word if you can't even remotely understand what it says. What what good is that? Yeah, yeah. it's because they've started with a with a, a certain amount of unbelief in their thinking. They've they've denied one of the doctrines we have to believe when we come to the scriptures, which is its uh, sufficiency. Uh, and that's what we're trying to stress in this episode is it's, it's not enough to just say, throw up your hands there and say like, Oh, I need to rid myself of presuppositions and I need to, uh, I, I need to just deal with the text uh, as is the reality is we always have our presuppositions and we need to make sure that they're, biblical presuppositions that they're informed by the text and one of those things is its sufficiency and if you come in doubting one of the most basic principles of the scripture you're going to be led in all sorts of bad directions as a consequence if you start off on the wrong foot you're going to end on the wrong foot so we need to make sure that we have the uh, appropriate uh metaphysics the appropriate hermeneutical framework when we we come in um, and one of this is the the uh, the that uh, uh, good and necessary consequences are necessary, and also that the clearer aspects of scripture, uh, as we read, are are uh, responsible for interpreting the unclear passages. So, for example, we go primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to the New Testament to understand things like how the covenants relate and the like, because those are where the clearer passages are founded. And the New Testament is given to be the interpretive light on the the Old Testament. Uh, the, the, the later and clearer revelation is it should be used to understand previous and more shadowy revelation, which the New Testament describes as a mystery that has been fully revealed 
in Christ and that Christ is the one who provides the light by which we can most clearly understand the rest of scripture. So we shouldn't start off with these obscure passages to understand it. We need to go to the clear passages, especially the New Testament passages that God has given us to interpret the rest of scripture. Yeah. And that's, Sean, that's interesting. You bring up N.T. Wright because his denial of those, I think this is in relation to the new perspective on Paul, but his denial of that historical reality of the Jews as found in scripture leads to a heretical view of salvation. Yeah. You know, the, this toying with justification. Well, you know, there, there's still some, something we have to do to keep our end of the bargain in order to be justified. Um, and, and it seems that there is this tie between his, uh, his faulty hermeneutics and then that's leading him to misunderstanding Paul in Romans 3, 4, and 5. Um, with regards to how we are saved. And so he's undermining core aspects of the faith, maybe not intentionally, but that's where it leads if he's mm-hmm. going to continue to be consistent. Yeah. yeah. N.T. Wright has, has some several, uh, several um, problems presuppositionally when he comes to the text. For example, he, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but he said something to the effect of that inerrancy is that quaint little American doctrine or something like that which is funny because we just quoted from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, which uh, promotes amer- inerrancy. Which uh, came from his country. Yeah, which came from <laughs> his country and uh, was written before America was a country. But, you know. Right. Yeah. Contrary to his church, too. Um, but, yeah, it's it's very interesting to, to see. Uh, and I think it's important to see where those presuppositions go. If you start here, where are you going to end up if you remain consistent? Um, it's dangerous stuff. Um, and we even see this now with the recovery of the doctrine of God. When you, you know, going back to what you said, Andrew, about good and necessary consequence, that's another hermeneutical principle. If we forget that, then we start um, creating all of these formulations of who God is uh, while denying this very principle that clearly our Baptist forefathers saw and was clearly in the Reformed tradition of. This, what flows necessarily from the scriptures must be contained in the scripture itself, at least in principle, and so carries the same authority and should be formulating our doctrine. Um, so, yeah, it, we start undermining core aspects of our faith if we're not careful. Um, yes. And it doesn't take much, you know, hey, I just don't, you know, I'm just going to deny the historical Adam. Uh, what does that imply for Jesus? Jesus is the second Adam, right? And and he's Jesus is fulfilling the role that Adam uh, failed to keep. Uh, what are the implications for that if he's not real? If he was just some kind of allegorical fake um, fake construct of of Moses, uh, so it has massive implications uh, if these things are compromised. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that we do use good and necessary consequences isn't only our tradition, but it is part of what the Bible provides as as our hermeneutical uh, framework. We see this in uh, the Gospels when Jesus is confronting the Sadducees about the resurrection. He he appeals to Exodus saying, have you not read that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So then he is not the God of the dead, but of the living is, is what he says. There's nothing in the text that directly says that he's drawing out necessary consequences from the text. If he's currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it shows you that there is a life after death. Uh, so it, so the hermeneutics, the Bible encourages us to use 
uh, is against that kind of radical, what we might call radical biblicism, which says if, if I don't have like a, a verse that word for word says this doctrine, it's not biblical. The Lord rebukes that. And he rebukes the Sadducees for being so hard of heart not to see the implications of what the Old Testament taught. Yeah, I actually I want to harp on that a little bit more. Um, Jesus starts out by saying, um, "You uh, you know that neither know the power." Of, or I'm gonna not remember the the quote exactly, but um, he then goes on to say, oh, "What? Well, have you not read? Have you not read what God spoke to you saying?" And they're the Sadducees. This is a quotation from Exodus. Of course, they had read Exodus. This is this is a verbal slap in the face from Jesus, um, saying you 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 miss something so so obvious that you um, I'm, I'm I'm taking you to task about it. Um, and it's not it's not explicitly said in there at all. It's it's implicitly uh, stated in there. And we don't want to be taken to task by our Lord either um, for having missed something that while it wasn't explicitly said, it was there implicitly. So we have to be very careful to um, accept both the explicit and the implicit um, uh, teachings of scripture. You'll get uh, a lot of theological liberals or other people that want to avoid what the scriptures are saying by saying like, oh, I need an explicit verse. Where does it explicitly say xyz is sinful where does it explicitly say that that marijuana is sinful or or whatever the case may be and um even god's implications are are binding on you and you need to be uh careful about um making sure you understand what they are yeah it's like when people say you know well i've heard this argument before um well, church isn't in the Bible. The word church isn't in the Bible. So, you know, therefore, church must not really be a construct that's biblical. Um, arguments like that are, are really silly and foolish. It, it just denies that good and necessary consequence. Clearly, the concept is there. Or it's a it's a word concept fallacy, what we would call. It's because the word well, isn't there doesn't mean the concept is there. Yeah, the, it, the, Greek, the Greek word ekklesia translated as church yes it, it means congregation like and it never is referring to like a building necessarily or cold out right yeah yeah but um yeah it is the word concept fallacy like okay like it might not mean ex- like exactly what we think of when we hear the word church but it's still an appropriate translation yeah yeah so we just have we just have to be very careful not to yeah, fall into that trap. It's very easy to do. And I think it's from well-meaning, primarily well-meaning people who are trying to follow what the scriptures say. They're just uh, taking these concepts too far, probably just not realizing it. Um, but if you're not careful, you undermine core aspects of the faith. Um, and and we have to just guard against that. Um, and, and I think moving on to our next topic here, we have to be careful too not to see the scriptures or the study of the scriptures is really an end of itself. Um, We're really, as Carter says on page 111 of this book, he says, quote, so when we talk about biblical interpretation, we are not talking about some sort of academic exercise in which people argue about the best intellectual construct to use in describing their faith. We are talking about the heart of the gospel itself, the essence of our faith, end quote. So we have to be very careful not to when we're engaging in biblical interpretation, we're not just trying to figure out who's the smartest 
person in the room as it relates to scripture. We are really seeking to apply these things to our hearts. Um, and I think having that as part of our hermeneutic as well will help us to better apply the scriptures that we interpret. Uh, we're not just trying to come up with cool uh, theological formulations that we can write down or, or put on our social media sites. Uh, we are really trying to apply these things and uh, to teach them to others so that we can glorify God ultimately, as yeah. is our end. Um, and that really should be the culmination of, of true hermeneutics, um, which is the, the glory of God. And Andrew, you had an Owen quote here that you wanted to refer to as well. Oh, yeah. So so that was – this one kind of uh, will advance us in a little bit of a different direction, but uh, I thought it was important. Um, and I touched on it a little bit, uh, the idea that, you know, the scriptures are a divine work, right? The human writers were used, but they – it's ultimately God's uh, words, and I think John Owen had a, a great quote on this, which I think by some has been a little bit misunderstood, so I will qualify it slightly based off of some other things he said. But uh, the quote is, the doctrines they, which are the human writers of Scripture, delivered, uh, the instructions they gave, the stories they recorded, the promises of Christ, the prophecies of gospel times they gave out and revealed, were not their own, not conceived in their minds, not formed by their reasonings, not retained in their memories from what they heard, not by any means beforehand comprehended by them. And he quotes First uh, Peter 1, 10, 11, or he references it, I should say. Um, but, but were all of them immediately from God. Their tongue and what they said, or their hand and what they wrote, uh, was uh, was sefer, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, no more at their own disposal than the pen is in the hand of an expert writer. Now, the one qualification I'll give is because some people might hear that and say it sounds like divine dictation theory. Uh, but that's not the case, because just like the pen in the hand of the writer doesn't have any of its nature uh, subjugated or, or lost in the process, so too is so too is it true when God uses the human author? It's he doesn't um, he doesn't suspend uh, their agency in the process while he does it. Owen elsewhere says that he he rather than suspending their faculties, he acts their faculties in writing scripture. Uh, the point that Owen is given here is that it's not like the human authors have their own unique agenda that they're bringing to the table here. It's not like Paul was thinking like, oh, uh, what, like, how can I best express the gospel today? Or should I write to the Romans today uh, when coming up with the epistle of the Romans? It's not like the prophet Isaiah was saying, I feel like prophesying today uh, and then prayed for a little while and then said, yeah, this is the best way to express this or not. Like, no, these are words that are provided from God him, himself. Uh, he may he may use uh, their experiences. Uh, he might use their vocabulary that's more familiar to them, uh, and and he, he and he'll if he's using the perspective of the human writer, he will accurately express their uh, uh, their feelings and the like. Uh, if he's say if it's Paul rebuking a congregation or anything, uh, the idea though is that this isn't premeditated stuff from the human author's mind. And and the their writings don't depend on their own ability to articulate things, their own ability to ensure that their memories are accurate and verify them. God brought to their mind everything they needed in the words 
by which they should use to express it when they were writing scriptures. And so in that sense, they were like a pen in their hands. So we should never come to scripture as if it's a mere providential phenomenon uh, where God just kind of moved the pieces of the human writers to put them in the right place to, to write scripture. Scripture speaks of it as a supernatural work of God, as, as God breathed, God breathing on the sails and producing uh, scripture uh, from his human uh, authors. Furthermore, Second Peter expressly denies that prophecies came by the will of man, but they came by, by the Holy Ghost as, as, he, as he moved the prophets to write what they what they did so we can have confidence when we approach the scriptures that these are god's words himself these aren't the words of man they're not a haphazard collection they are god's words and when you read it in that light it will fundamentally change how you understand the scriptures then if you did read it that other way which so many scholars today seem to read and seem seem to presuppose that this is how scripture should be understand understood as as yeah accurate works maybe inerrant works but works that just kind of came together as circumstances played out. That's not how we should be reading the scriptures. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, just like the next quote I have there from Carter, from page 32 of his book, the act of reading a biblical text is not a secular act. It is actually a, It actually is a divine human encounter. So just like inspiration was a divine human encounter where God was inspiring it, so is reading it. Um, and that just speaks more to its authorship, that it came from God himself. Um, and I, and this, I think, kind of uh, catapults us, I think, well into our next discussion here on really how we're to look at the Bible as a whole as we're coming to this. Are we to see it as um, the dispensationalists would see it as a segregated set of stories that don't really come together uh, in a unified whole, but really are broken up in different times? Or do we see this as a unified whole centering around Christ? Um, and I, that's the latter is what we would see, that the scriptures are centering around Jesus Christ. Both Old and New Testaments are culminating in the New Covenant. Um, and this really, I mean, you could have a discussion on covenant theology, and that's really what covenant theology is. It's how do we read our Bibles? I think uh, our pastor, Pastor Steve, he's going to be talking about covenant theology here soon but i think that's how we framed it how how do you read your bible um and we read it covenantally as a unified whole centered around jesus christ with the old testament leading up and pointing forward to christ coming and the new testament looking back and revealing uh the son of god and the father in the process um and but we do see this historically as well um going all the way back to justin martyr and, and carter brings this out very well i think in his book um, where he talked, he kind of lays us out. Justin Martyr lays us out in his first apology. Justin Martyr was defending the Christian faith uh, in front of really the emperor at the time um, and showing the validity of Christianity. And Justin Martyr, being the philosopher that he was, uh, wanted to make sure that Christianity was uh, a reasonable religion, it wasn't something absurd. Um, and so he brought out certain concepts, but one of those was showing that Christ was preached in the Old Testament, that there was this shadowing forward of Jesus Christ. It, the Old Testament wasn't disjointed from the New, but that it was unified around Jesus Christ. Um, and this is actually going back very far. Justin Martyr was born uh, less than 100 years after Christ's death, um, and 
and was around the time of Paul as well. Um, so we, this is very, very early on, first century, second century Christianity uh, that we're seeing here. Um, so this formulation of a, a unified whole around Jesus Christ is nothing new. We, you see this very, very early on. Um, but we see this very nature of Scripture centered around uh, Jesus Christ. You see like Isaiah 53, which is probably the most well-known, one of the most well-known passages that talk about the suffering servant, that Christ is going to come and die. Sure, it doesn't use his name. It doesn't say that uh, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but all of the elements that are fulfilled or lived out in Christ's life are there in Isaiah 53. Um, even some of the Psalms we see that might appear to be talking only about David are actually applied to Christ later on. Um, and we see that later on being uh, played out in the discussions in the New Testament. Um, so we should read, as Carter says, we should be uh, looking at what the apostles do and reading Christ out of the Old Testament and seeing this as foundational to everything that we see uh, in Scripture. And that will help us to avoid things like dispensationalism which do not see this unified whole centered around Christ. There's one plan for Israel, one plan for the church, um, and, and there's this really this disjointed uh, aspects of Scripture rather than seeing it as unified whole. Or, as like uh, Andy Stanley has done recently, saying we have to unhitch the Old Testament. You know, we just have to—the Old Testament doesn't really matter that much. The New Testament is what matters. Um, and again, that's— that's also from a faulty hermeneutic, not seeing Scripture as a unified whole centered around Jesus Christ. Scripture ultimately is about God redeeming the people to himself um, through Jesus Christ for his own glory. That, that's If you want to sum up the Scriptures in, in just a few sentences, that's it. Um, and I don't think our modern minds like that very much. We like Scripture to be about us primarily and, and our circumstances, but it's not really about us ultimately. It's about the glory of God um, in bringing a people to himself and bringing about his sovereign, immutable will um, to fruition. And that's really where we find uh, where we find scripture. Which is exactly the apostolic example that's given for us over and over again. Uh, the apostles will cite the Old Testament text and they don't treat them like disjointed uh, haphazard texts that are just describing um, these these historical events that don't really have any relevance for today. They see him time and time again being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Yes, they absolutely acknowledge the historicity of, of events from historical sections of the Bible. Absolutely. They 100% affirm that because they believe that the God of redemption is also the God of history and the God of redemption. Uh, and he guided these things to point to these future realities. But, but they fundamentally understand is everything is pouring to Christ. And even the Old Testament hermeneutics that it would provide us do the same thing. There's a messianic thrust that pervades the entirety of Scripture, beginning with Genesis 3.15 and the, and the promise of God to provide the seed that would undo the curse. And you see as this moves through the book of Genesis how it's narrowed down further, first to be of the, the seed of Abraham. Then in Genesis 49, we see it being narrowed down further to the seed of Judah. 
which is discussed also in the book of Numbers and in, in, uh, Balaam's pro- prophecy. Uh, and then it's narrowed down even further to the to the son of David, uh, 2 Samuel 7, which I'll address towards the end of this. Uh, so, so there's this thrust that's moving through the whole thing. And there's even, um, I apologize, I didn't have the psalm ready to go beforehand, but, but uh, it might be Psalm 70. Uh, and there's several other places where it will follow the, the history of God's people and it will show that it's 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 going forward, it's going somewhere. And and uh, the one I, I I'm particularly thinking of now uh, talks about God's redeeming His people, and then how they fail, and then He'll redeem again, and He'll fail. But then it has it ends with the blessings ultimately being found in the Davidic throne, and that's how the psalm ends with the blessings that are brought in. It's it's pointing forward. All of Scripture is pointing forward. The Old Test- uh, Testament is pointing forward uh, to Jesus Christ, and then the New Testament comes in and points backwards to him. So he is the center of the entirety of scripture. Yeah. And you even see this, this principle um, like John three, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he rebukes Nicodemus because he didn't see certain messianic and salvific tendencies in the old Testament. Like what does the concept of being washed with water and the spirit mean? And what does the concept of being born again mean? He said, you should have known this. Why? Because it was taught in the old Testament. Um, it, which is ultimately tied back to Christ um, in the Messiah. So there, there are these, e- even though there is shadow and mystery, there is certainly revelation there that they should have understood when Christ came on the scene. They should be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That fits with this, and this fits with that. Oh, and Jesus is saying this, but they didn't get it. And ultimately it was because they were blinded by their own sin and they didn't want to, to get it. Um, Jesus threatened their very existence. So, yeah, we do see this, uh, these paradigms throughout Scripture. And like looking at the book of Hebrews, I mean, especially um, through the early part of Hebrews, um, where you see this, like Hebrews uh, 7 and 8, 9 and 10, where you see this fleshing out of what was this Old Testament all about and what was it pointing forward to? Oh, the the Levitical priesthood was pointing forward to Christ's eternal priesthood. He's the priest forever, according to the the order of Melchizedek. Oh, okay. So Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis had significance even now to the Messiah. So there's just this constant unison. And then the, the apostles um, quoting Old Testament passages constantly, you know, it, as it is written, as it is written, and then applying it in a messianic sense to our salvation and ultimately to Christ. So this is just, like you said, Andrew, this is just apostolic hermeneutics they're they're going back and they're seeing the old testament as pointing forward um and we can't really see it any other way that's where it ultimately points and if we don't we're going to end up with these disjointed views like dispensationalism that don't really see a unified whole uh in the scriptures um so yeah that's that's how we have to come to the scriptures with our hermeneutic so Andrew, if you want to take us into the oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's a terrible thing to rob Scripture, which is about Christ, as He says that all Scripture is about uh, Jesus Christ. Um, that's what the Lord says. It's a terrible thing to then rob Him from the words that He Himself authored in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and to make it about something that's that's not Him, that to whom all glory belongs. To every praise and blessing belongs to, to to take scriptures, sacred scriptures about him and make it about something else is a is a horrible thing. And it and it mm. it's no wonder why so many people have such 
little love for the Old Testament scriptures today when you have that hermeneutic being so pervasive because then none of it's relevant to us. It's just disjointed historical events. It just is how it happened to play out. Um, but that's not what Paul says about scriptures. And he's got primarily the Old Testament scriptures in mind. And that's right. was most of what was composed at that in Second Timothy In 2 Timothy, yeah. Absolutely. He's talking primarily about the Old Testament. Yep. Yeah. He says, and that's and that's profitable for us. Why? Right. Because it's 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 about Christ and it's got lessons for us that are relevant today. There's topology that points to church life in some instances. Like you mentioned the Levites before, how Isaiah prophesizes that that those in Christ would be uh made uh priests and Levites unto him. Not obviously following the same customs that they did, which were abolished at the cross. But there's even certain things there that point ahead, like how the Levites, when they were inaugurated, they were, they were completely sha- uh, shaven all over and washed with water. So they're as like newborn babes, essentially, born again and, ba- and, and baptized, uh, entering into uh, church life. There, there, there are tons of things like that scattered throughout the Old Testament. And they're there for our edification and for us to glory in God and his wisdom. In, in, um, in so many different ways, glorifying his son throughout the ages. Sean, hmm. you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I think we're probably ready to go to the, the next section here on the grammatical historical method. All right, Andrew David. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll start us off. So um, here I'm, I'm dependent largely on Michael Radlnick and his great book, which is called uh, The Messianic. Hope. This is specifically chapter eight. He kind of deals with the uh, origin of what would be the backbone of a lot of what's today called the historical grammatical method or grammatical historical method, um, which to start us off, I want to be clear what I mean by the grammatical historical method, because in principle, we absolutely should be interpreting and understanding scripture based on the historical context and, and the language that's that's being used. Uh, that's that's a very agreeable concept in and of itself. Um, unfortunately, though, when so-called grammatical historical uh, hermeneutics is applied, what's really being done is a limiting the historical context to uh, nothing more than the local events of the, the the human author, even if the text is a prophetic text and might be quite. Uh, far uh, sighted in its, in its view, it's looking, it's looking ahead. Um, they'll, they'll often uh, limit everything to that immediate historical context, ignoring again, that the, the, the divine author behind it and how he's given us a whole Bible to understand this and to have the, the historical context we should use while it indeed starts with, with maybe the time of the human writer. It, it's expansive to, to all the redemptive historical context of God's people. So that's what I mean when I'm, when I'm talking about the bad form of grammatical historical exegesis, so this this kind of reconstruction of the historical context of the human author and using that to drive your interpretation, often based on fairly scant extra biblical uh, material and archaeological discoveries. Um, so it's trying to interpret everything locally. So Michael Radlnick does a very good job on showing that the origin of that kind of like local obsessed reading of prophets in particular um it, it's not a historically jewish practice they they were fairly messianic in their interpretation for most of jewish history all the way up into the early middle ages 
But there's uh, someone by the name of Rabbi Rashi, who lived from 1040 to 1105, who really popularized this, this, uh, this local emphasis when interpreting these prophetic passages. Um, he, and his goal was to combat Christian messianic interpretation. Uh, so he shifted the emphasis from, uh, uh, from, from that, that messianic focus or that, uh, that idea that these are dealing with distant prophecies uh, to, to that historical uh, emphasis, having a near fulfillment about the time of the prophet in, in order to combat those messianic interpretations. And he strongly influenced the later Jewish interpreters who pretty much all follow him to a T today if you read their interpretations of of the common messianic passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, uh, etc. Um, but he also had an influence in Christian uh, writers and from a fairly early age. Uh, Hugo uh, and his disciple Andrew of St. Victor, uh, for example, they were two early men of the 12th century who, who, uh, uh, who were definitely influenced by his writings. Um, and, and they were uh, using his methodology in many instances of prophetic interpretation. Um, and then after him, Ni uh, Nicholas de Lira, uh, who lived from 1270 to 1349, uh, he was influenced by him. And he made a famous commentary called The Literal Notes Over the Whole Bible, which was very popular through the late Middle Ages into the Renaissance um, and was even influential to some of the early reformers, unfortunately. Uh, some of whom also, when they were uh, doing their study of the original Hebrew, uh, would consult those later medieval Jewish commentaries. And through them, you had, uh, you had some of this tendency that Rashi really pushed uh, enter even some of the Protestant circles. Unfortunately, you can see that in men as great as John Calvin, who, who, who we love. We're a big fan of John Calvin. He, he's Great commentary, uh, commenter on much of, of scripture, especially the New Testament. Great systematician. But one weakness I, I would say of his was how he interpreted some of these uh, passages and was clearly influenced by Rashi's methodology. For example, Genesis 3.15, he, he thought that was primarily a struggle between humanity and snakes, which was exactly Rashi's uh, interpretation of it. Um, so we need to be careful even when we're, we're reading these great giants of the faith and great giants of, of, of even Protestant, even Baptist Christianity, um, because we have to be aware that there was never a time when the church was perfect or didn't have some uh, bad influences coming from uh, outside it. So that's why the principle of semper, semper reformanda is very important. We always want to be ensuring that we're reforming all of our methods and uh, principles based off of uh, the, the scriptures. Uh, but in these earlier days, the, the result of the influence of Rashi was usually more of a, a census planure kind of interpretation of scripture, a, a dual fulfillment interpretation. So you'd have men such as Peter uh, Canaeus who seemed to really uh, latched on to that method of interpreting it. So you'd have a local fulfillment of prophecy, but then you'd also have a, a far fulfillment of prophecy in Christ. But uh, unfortunately, after the Enlightenment, and you had the rise of dispensationalism and the like, they uh, they, they took that kind of um, uh, background, that, that that the bedrock that was laid, and they began to emphasize that local fulfillment almost to the exclusion of the Christological fulfillment. And you'll see that pervading much of the commentaries that are created today 
this kind of minimalizing of the Christological uh, prophecies and this maximizing of, of local fulfillment, the context of the current writer. It, but this, this way of interpreting it, not only is it not biblical, not only is it not apostolic, it's not even historical. You don't really see this until Rashi in the, in the 12th century and after he began uh, influencing Christian circles. Uh, so we want to stay clear of this way of thinking. It's it's it should have no part in in our hermeneutics. That's interesting about the uh, the grammatical historical method that, and and I think that Carter brings this out in his book too that it really is a a modern construction. Um, yeah. Even I guess you consider the medieval period somewhat contemporary, but considering there is, um, you know almost a thousand years before that time of the church. Exactly. Existing. From, from yeah. the standpoint of the church, it's contemporary, right? Right. Really, really, we should consider anything that's not apostolic or of the primitive church contemporary because we're not, right. we're not, we're, <laughs> there's no new magisterium past that point that defines our doctrine. That, that is the church was supposed to imitate. We've had better periods of the church that had more light than others, such as we would say the, the 17th century, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Protestants, as that'd be one of the brightest eras, I would say, of church history since the beginning. But even then, that's not our final standard. It's it's scripture. We're trying to imitate apostolic uh, Christianity here, and we imitate those 17th century guys in, in as much as they're imitating them, which I would say they did very well in vast vast majority of of, of cases. Yeah, and, and these men, all, all of them, even the writers of our own confession, and all the reformers were men of their time. And like you noted with John Calvin, some of them let those influences go too far. Um, and, and yeah, they were just men of their time. They were influenced by the world around them, especially those in academia. John Calvin would have been in academia. Luther would have been in academia. Um, those who taught in the universities. Um, so, yeah, there there is an influence that can creep in if we're not careful um, it, that can influence our hermeneutics. Um but, you know, going back to what Andrew said in the beginning about really balancing out uh, these the historical and literary contexts with the Christological understanding um, or the literal sense of the passage, passages of Scripture, uh, we do see that there is a real place for historical application. And I think and we agree that there are limited instances where you can use the grammatical historical method. Uh, in as much as you're applying historical context in understanding what a, how a passage could be applied today. And I just want to give a couple examples of that. Second um, Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this was a, a cultural practice at the time um, to greet one another with it. It was an actual kiss, probably a kiss on the on the cheek. It's a sign of, it would be the equivalent to our handshake. It's a greeting. It's a it's a sign of trust and a sign of of uh, brotherly love to to those in the church. Um, now, if you want to apply this from a historical perspective or, or a literal perspective, I should say, uh, we would say that um, we would have to practice that today if we're just going to take it as is. Well, Paul said it's a command. It's an imperative. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, but why do churches not practice that today primarily? Um, it's because we see there is a historical understanding or, or a cultural understanding that Paul is ascribing here to those in his to those local congregations where he was. Um, and we don't see that cultural 
principle carrying over into our Western principles. Um, but we still carry over the, the principle that Paul is saying here. It's to greet one another in love. It's to show brotherly affection to one another as Christians. We're to do that. You know, we do that with handshakes. We do that with hugs. But in our culture, giving a kiss to someone, uh, even someone that's close to us, is not necessarily looked upon as um, affirmative or could carry negative implications. So we tend to stay away from that in our culture. And that's fine because we do not want to give the impression to the world around us that we're practicing uh, things that we shouldn't be practicing or or give any kind of implication of, of sinful behavior. Um, so we see these principles being carried over. We don't deny what Paul is saying entirely. Paul is clearly saying to love one another here. But we do that in different ways um, and express that in our own way. Um, you, we also look over in John chapter 13, John 13, 12 through 17. Uh, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know that I, or what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. But Jesus clearly says that the disciples are to wash one another's feet. But we don't do that in our church. We don't do that in the broader Western culture, although there are churches that do literally wash each other's feet. They take what Jesus says um, on its face, that we see this as a cultural norm. It was normal to uh, have your feet washed when you went into somebody's house because the roads were dirty and people's feet got dirty. So you wash their feet. It was a sign of it was a sign of affection and, and, and hospitality and respect. So what is Jesus giving here as an example? He's giving a, a humble servant's attitude and that they should emulate that. Well, we can do that in different ways. It doesn't have to be done by the washing of the feet. And we just we don't practice that in our uh, culture. Um, simply because the, uh, we don't have to deal with the conditions that they dealt with back then. So this practice is not done. Um, so, But we carry the principle over. We carry the principle over. Even Paul, when he talks about uh, women in modesty, he says that women are not to adorn themselves with braided hair and, and gold and jewelry. Um, well, people do that today in our culture. They braid their hair. Women braid their hair and they wear jewelry, but we wouldn't consider that a violation of the principle that Paul is giving because the principle is modesty. In his culture, to wear those things was flagrant and over the top, but it's not necessarily that in our culture. So it, there are these historical contexts that can help us to understand not necessarily what it means. I think it's pretty clear no matter what it is that uh, Paul is saying here, we understand the principle that's being communicated. But how do we apply it to us today when we don't practice these things? Mm -hmm. So using the historical context, I think, is very helpful here when we're interpreting these texts. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I'd like to make, too, a clear distinction between doing something like this versus what some people will do in using a work like this, which is a collection of Ugaritic narrative poetry, and use this as like a primary guide and understanding Old Testament texts and coming up with all sorts of strange uh, interpretations from it. Uh, what you've described like the uh, about the holy kiss and 
uh, feet washing has been common knowledge throughout church history, right? We understand, like, yes, they lived in a dirtier culture where their feet would get dirty, more hygiene wasn't as good, and they had to they had to wash their feet. We understand that it's a custom in some places in the world to, to greet with a, a kiss. And we see in the context of the passage, too, there's no emphasis on the act itself. The emphasis is on the the greeting of the person, the, the brotherly love. There are certain principles just of really common sense, and um, but, but also – uh, things that are commonly accessible to the Church of of God when you come to 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 texts such as these, and, and that's in contrast to using uh, something like what I held up, which is based off of very recent archaeological discoveries that are not accessible to the church, uh, and using that as a, as a primary guide for interpreting the, the text. Those are very different uh, different things because there are some things that are kind of uh, commonly provided the church, such as language itself and understanding of the language. You don't you don't learn how to read Hebrew from the Bible, but 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 the ability to learn Hebrew is available. The ability to learn Greek is available, uh, and we have people who know these things that you can consult. Uh, those have been commonly available versus things that the way people use them would be necessary to understand the text that. That nobody would have a clue for the first eighteen hundred years of uh, of church history, so we, we want to make a clear distinction between these things, uh, and not go too far one way or the other. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> that's a very important point, um, and specifically with the uh, the Ugaritic text that we've uh, um, dug up. Uh, you pointed out that a lot of them are incomplete, have mm-hmm. have entire sections that are completely uh, yeah. missing. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. P- page eighty-eight of this, and a lot of this, by the way. So this is all of the Ugaritic literature, right? Uh, and narrative poetry, at least. Uh, a lot of this, first of all, is just commentaries on the text. Uh, but I don't know how well the audience can see through the, our camera here. But there, the number of brackets and ellipses and everything else is truly astonishing. This this one page here says the number of lines missing from the beginning and end of this column is unknown. Like there, there's, we're not talking about uh, good, well transmitted text here. But nevertheless, these things are being used in, in um, even some Bible believing, ostensibly Bible believing yeah. circles. Because often when you're dealing with someone who doesn't want to take a messianic interpretive uh, uh, passage of scripture, you'll hear something to the effect of, oh, well, the Jews wouldn't have understood it that way, or they, they couldn't have understood it if that was that was the meaning. Um, and underlying that is the idea that the person you're talking to would have known what somebody, a Jew, back in the time that it was written, would have uh, would have understood it to mean. Um and as we've seen, we have an uh, we have an idea of what Jews believe based on on what they believe um, in the modern era, but that's not necessarily what they would have believed at the time. And we have some idea based on um, things that we've dug up archaeologically, but even that's incomplete. Um, so to say, oh well, there's no way a Jew could have understood it in the way you're talking about, I think is a, a little bit of a, a stretch, but. Even if that were the case, what are we told in Scripture? Romans 15, 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So, again, there's that second unbelieving, or there's that second presupposition that um, the, the 
the Old Testament was written primarily or exclusively uh, for the Jews, and we're just sort of reading it as, a, as an afterthought, whereas we're told that, no, what was written beforehand, the Old Testament was written for us. It was written for those in Paul's day, and it's written for us. So if it's written for us, we should be able to understand it. We won't always understand it perfectly, but we should at least have the ability to understand it. Yeah. To, re- to reinforce that, First Peter 1, 10 through 12, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently to prophesy of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So rather than having a, a prioritization of the local context of Old Testament events, the New Testament uh, use it as the lens that these things are building up to us. What we're experiencing now is the climax of revelation of salvation, the things that angels desire to look into. And, and we are the ones who've, who've now been recipients of, of, of the blessings. Christ has come. He has shed light on the mysteries of God and, and they're revealed in a way that they weren't before. So that, that needs to be our, our hermeneutical lens by which we, we view the rest of scripture because Scripture tells us to do it that way. Scripture tells us it's about Christ. Scripture tells us that the Old Testament looks forward to the New Testament. And that needs to be the way that we, we read Scripture. If, if, we, if we believe what 2 Timothy 3 through 16 through 17 says, that it is sufficient for, for these kinds of matters. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we'll kind of close up here with our final topic, um, talking about single fulfillment versus double fulfillment. Um, and I will mention just for full disclosure, um, we don't, myself and, and, uh, Andrew and Sean don't see eye to eye fully on, on single fulfillment versus double fulfillment. Um, but what we're going to talk about here specifically, what Andrew's going to talk about, I think we do uh, agree on at least in principle. Um, so I just want to bring that out in full disclosure and, and maybe we can have a, another episode or a blog post later, maybe flushing out those differences more, but um, I'll just put that out there for now. So, Andrew, if you want to um, close us out with discussion of uh, dual fulfillment and single fulfillment. Um, sure, but I'll actually let uh, Sean start the first part because he's got the oh, sure. first bullet, yeah, go ahead. bullet in there. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just briefly going over um, Luke uh, 24, 25 through 27. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the takeaway here is that um, all of the scriptures point to Christ, at least in some way. Uh, we read even read books that we might not think that are pointing to Christ, like, say, Ruth or or um, I don't know, the Proverbs, but they are indeed pointing to Christ. We're told that in all the scriptures, um, Christ is being pointed to. So we should read the Bible with that, uh, with that hermeneutic. Um, and we see the apostles, when um, they're applying this, oftentimes they'll say things like um, when Peter's preaching in Acts 2, 
And referring back to the Psalms, he said, this Psalm isn't about David. David is uh, dead in the dead in the grave. And this is talking about somebody who wasn't, uh, who would not see corruption. So um, this gets into how do we view Old Testament prophecy? Um, is it only fulfilled in Christ? Is there a local fulfillment and then a, a far fulfillment in Christ? How do we, how do we view this? And then at this point, I'll hand it back yeah, to Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the, cause the, as Sean was talking about, you can, there's two perspectives cause there's definitely in the new Testament an emphasis on these old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. Um, yet some people still, uh, see when they read old testament texts a local fulfillment as well so they'll 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 uh push for what's called census planure or dual fulfillment um many men that i respect greatly push for that uh that view um however i, I would argue that if if we're going to be consistent with the conviction that scripture provides us the hermeneutics and the uh, that the, the principles of interpretation that we need for scripture i don't see it sanctioning a a dual fulfillment approach uh the text seemed to only be cited as being fulfilled in the new testament and it's usually only when you come in with the assumption that that this local parallel event is also the fulfillment that you come away with dual fulfillment in other words i think you have to assume that there's two fulfillments in order to come away from it rather than having any new testament or elsewhere precedent that these are indeed uh, uh by scripture shown to have multiple uh, fulfillments. Um, so it, it seems to me the apostles' approach is to always treat such texts as Christological, and they don't mention other uh, fulfillments for it. Um, one example I've heard being brought up as a counterexample to this before is is uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, when he says that uh, it was expedient uh, for one man to die for the for the nation. And scripture tells us that this, he spoke being, um, being the high priest, not of himself, but being the high priest, uh, so that he had his one meaning behind it, what he meant for it, but what the, but, uh, God had another meaning that, 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 uh, uh, that, that he providentially had, um, had used what, what Caiaphas said to, to point to. Um, but I would simply say for that text that it's, not an example of, of Theonustas. It's um, obviously the text itself is Theonustas, but it's uh, what Caiaphas is doing is not, he's not being a prophet in the Old Testament uh, sense. Um, and that's just a purely providential event, which is different from uh, the supernatural event of, of inspiration. Um, I don't, I don't see there as being a clear parallel between that and uh, what's happening in the Old Testament. And in any case, you don't see the New Testament writers, quoting the Old Testament text in, in, in such a way. Um, but, but anyways, um, so yeah, I, I would argue we should regulate our methodology based off of what we see the apostles do when they're interpreting Old Testament uh, texts. Um, so yeah, it's definitely true that there are sometimes near historical events that will parallel the fulfillments in some ways in these prophecies, but uh, I believe we should understand these as as types rather than other fulfillments. They're, they're accompanying types to reinforce the prophetic message. And, and types are sanctioned in, in the scriptures. We see that in several places, um, but I, I don't see dual fulfillment as being sanctioned. Um, so, so they're not, uh, so we shouldn't read them as additional uh, fulfillments. Um, and, and furthermore, such events usually, if not always have some deficiency that prevents them from being 
really viable fulfillments of those prophecies. Um, one example of this is Second Samuel seven. This is co- a commonly cited text uh, as as having two fulfillments. People will say it was fulfilled in Solomon and it was also fulfilled uh, in Christ. Um, but I would disagree. I would disagree with that. Um, because historically Christians like Augustine, for instance, have said of this passage that he who thinks this grand promise was fulfilled in Solomon greatly errs. That's from the City of God, uh, uh, book 17, uh, 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 point eight. And, and then he, he goes on to list reasons why it couldn't have been fulfilled in Solomon. So he's not just saying that, oh, it's that the greater fulfillment was Christ. He's, he gives you reasons why Solomon couldn't have fulfilled uh, this prophecy. Uh, as for those reasons, most obviously it's, I would say Solomon didn't establish David's throne forever. Like the fulfiller of the prophecy is said to do. I, I do have to take a slight diversion here because I know that the response of some will be, well, the, the, the phrase uh, uh, forever there doesn't always mean literally forever. It, it can mean uh, a, a long uh, period of time, but uh, I, I would respond by saying, well, just like in English, that the context makes this clear because we can use the word forever in English and not mean for eternity. But when we mean for eternity, it's very obvious when we mean it that way, that when we mean forever, we mean forever. And the context where it's otherwise, it's it's also uh, apparent. And I believe that's the case in in Hebrew as as well. And I'll give two examples of this where the, that same phrase, ad olam, uh, uh, appears. Uh, my first example is uh, Psalm 133, verse 3, which reads, As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, uh, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. The other example I'm going to give is Deuteronomy 15, 17. Uh, it's talking about a slave who wants to remain his master's servant after his term has expired. And it says of him, um, uh, or, or the master rather, that then thou shalt take an awl and thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he shall be thy servant forever. So just intuitively, when you read both of those texts, uh, when you hear in Psalm 133, uh, verse 3, uh, the Lord commanding the blessing, life forevermore, intuitively you understand that's a real forever. That's That's life forever with the Lord. Likewise, though, when you hear about the slave being uh, the slave of the master forever, you intuitively grasp that, hey, well, obviously, if the slave or the master dies, the relationship ends. And we talk like that in English, too, uh, when we use the phrase forever, like, oh, I'm going to be at this job forever, stuff like that. Um, so so how, do, how do you grasp it? Well, rather, whether or not you uh, you know exactly how our, you, you would articulate why you, you understand one to be referring to a, a real eternity and the other just for uh, until certain conditions are met. Um, you might not be able to articulate it, but I would argue that the reason is, is because uh, we recognize in one case, there are obvious external circumstances that would cause the thing said to last forever uh, to end. Like in the case of the slave and the master, obviously if one dies, um, that's the end of it. But in the other case, there is no such circumstances. It's a unilateral promise made by the unchanging eternal God with nothing in the creature to uh, to fulfill to make the promise valid, it's a unilateral promise. Uh, and since it's a unilateral promise by an eternal God, uh, it's as eternal as the promise of that eternal God. Uh, there's nothing in creation or within God, no external circumstance that would cause a thing said to last forever to actually uh, perish. 
and, and to not last forever. So it's therefore truly an eternal promise. Um, so I, I would argue that in its broadest sense, uh, forever or ad olam, the Hebrew phrase, uh, means that the thing in question has no natural end within itself. Um, it, uh, so when, when it's used in situations where there are external factors that could disrupt it, we understand it to not literally mean for all eternity. But in other cases where there are no such external factors, then it, it does mean eternity, like in Psalm 133. Um, so how does this apply to 2 Samuel 7? When you take it in context of the biblical narrative, um, 2 Samuel 7 is just further narrowing down that promise for um, uh, rectifying the fall, for undoing the curse of Genesis 3.15. It's the same word for seed that's used as in Genesis 3.15, uh, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, and this is a promise for eternal deliverance. It's not just a temporal uh, uh, action here. It's being narrowed down from first just a descendant of Eve, then to Abraham, uh, and then to Judah, and now to David. Um, and in, even in the, pro, uh, the prophecy itself, God makes it clear that this is an unconditional promise. So there's nothing, uh, nothing in what uh, the, the, the fulfiller is doing that could undo the promise. Therefore, it can't just be a long period of time. This is, a again, like Psalm 133, it's a unilateral unconditional promise of God that does not depend upon the performance of the of the creature. So it's a sure promise. So because of that, Solomon couldn't fulfill it. He didn't do anything to establish the throne forever. In fact, he did such a poor job in establishing it forever that the kingdom fell apart right after him. Uh, and I do believe a lot of that's connected to his sin. Um, so, so Solomon is not the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's just a type in that he built a house for God's people, which which models the fact that the fulfiller of this would also build a house for God, but a much truer and a much better, uh, better house. And another, uh, and I would argue even less uh, controversial reason is that uh, about why Solomon couldn't be the fulfiller is that it says of him that, that whoever this is, he would be one who God would raise up after David sleeps with his fathers. In other words, after David dies. Uh, whereas in first Kings one forty eight. David blesses God for having seen Solomon sit on the throne and reign with him. So he couldn't have been the fulfillment of it because he uh, inherited his throne before David died. Whereas the prophecy is very clear. It, the fulfiller would only sit on his throne after David dies. So rather than supporting dual fulfillment, I would say that this text supports the, the pre-modern approach, the pre-modern hermeneutical approach, which Justin the Martyr practices and which the church in general seemed to practice for the first uh, 12 centuries. Uh, Justin Martyr never references multiple fulfillments of the prophecy when he's disputing with, uh, with Trypho the Jew. He's very consistently saying this isn't about any historical figure like Hezekiah. When he's talking about Isaiah, it, this is about uh, Christ, um, and it seems to be the example of the apostles at all. So, so that's my argument. It's it's uh, for Christ-centered hermeneutic that's uh, that that points to Christ as the center of, of Scripture. And by the way, let me just say in passing, uh, I did write a blog article about this originally for uh, CBTS, actually. So it's called uh, "Preaching Christ from the Old Testament." So if you want a more thorough uh, explanation of this, you can you can go there. All right. Well, guys, thanks for uh, for contributing to this discussion today. It's a it's a big topic. I mean, <laughs> there's whole books that are written on this. I mean, I I got one right here. 
Um, but it's it's a big topic, but one that is important. And I, I think this is a, a really good discussion, at least a good primer to uh, discussing biblical hermeneutics. Um, but with that, uh, that will be all for today. Um, thank you all for joining us today. And we hope that you have a good Lord's Day tomorrow. And uh, Lord bless you all. Thank you.